Seigneur. Well, as we sang that last song, it reminded me uh, so much of uh, Billy Graham. I asked Dustin to sing that this morning because a lot of you know the story. I've told it many times. When I was uh, a month before I turned six years of age, back on uh, June the 10th of 1965, on a Thursday night, I was watching Billy Graham on the television with my parents, and I went in my room and I trusted Christ as my Savior. Um, I love that, that verse we just uh, sang there just a moment. Because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And I believe that promise that God gives in the gospel and the good news. And uh, Billy Graham was the, the messenger that God used. And the Bible says, blessed are the feet of those who bring, or beautiful are the, are the feet of those who bring good news. And uh, those beautiful feet of Billy Graham brought that message to my life. And so it's been a, a sentimental week for me, but uh, what, a, what a homegoing for him. He's graduated. Well, if uh, you're visiting with us here this morning, we're so glad you're here with us. Uh, thank you for taking time to come here and be with us this morning. I pray that our, our worship together and our fellowship together will enrich you spiritually. And we have the opportunity now to open the Bible together. If uh, you take your Bible and turn with me uh, to Romans 8.28, I want to look at this verse this morning, one of the most familiar, uh, best-loved verses in all the Bible. I'm sure you know it. Hopefully many of you can quote it. It's that great verse that says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are of the called according to His purpose. Well, may the Lord in His grace make this passage very real to us this morning. Back in uh, December of last year, just a couple months ago, Bob Green uh, wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, his commentary was about an unconventional ninth-grade graduation speech given by Chief Justice John Roberts uh, back in June 2017 at his son's school. Uh, there's just kind of a, a modest crowd that was gathered there. Um, it's the Cardigan Mountain School. It's a New Hampshire boarding school for boys in the 6th to ninth grade. And his son was graduating from the ninth grade, so they asked him to give the uh, commencement address. And it was not your uh, typical uh, commencement address. Here's at least some of what he said. He said, commencement speakers will typically wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that, and I will tell you why. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you'll be treated unfairly so that you'll come to know uh, the value of justice. I hope you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck. Now, I don't believe in bad luck, but I'm just as what he says. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you'll be conscious, conscious of the role of chance in life. And understand your success is not completely deserved, and the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. Hope you'll be ignored so you'll know the importance of listening to others. I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. And then he says, whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. I like that. He's a realist. And whether you benefit from them, he said, whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. Now, as you can see, that's where I got the, the title for this morning's message, the, the, the meaningful message in our misfortunes. He says, look, life depends upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. And there's few things I think more important uh, than seeing the message in our, in our misfortunes because we all know that life is filled with misfortune. 
It's filled with, with suffering. It's filled with uh, struggles. It's filled with troubles. It's filled with trials. And I don't know what you're going through here this morning, but God does. And the good news, God not only knows what's happening in your life, but God knows where it's going. God sees it all. And our perspective is so small and limited and narrow. And one of the things I find is the older I get, the more I realize how small and narrow and limited my scope really is. We stumble easily over the messages um, in our misfortunes. But I think there's no greater verse to help us in this than Romans 8.28. It's arguably the greatest verse, the most comprehensive verse in all the Bible. In fact, um, the New American Standard has 27 words in verse 28. Some English translations have 23. But actually, in the original Greek, it's just 16 words. But think of how compressed and compact this is. And it's made up of the plainest one-syllable words in the English language. I mean, look at the verse, and we know that God causes all things. I think there's only three words, at least in New American Standard, uh, three words in the verse that have more than one syllable. But, but compressed into these simple one-syllable words is the greatest promise that's found anywhere in the Bible that helps us understand the meaningful message in our misfortune. And it's not just a cliche. I mean, it's not just kind of a, a snappy slogan that we use to make other people feel better in times of trial. It's not just a, a pious platitude. This is a precious promise from our sovereign God to us. And simply stated, Romans 8.28 is the God-given assurance that if you love God, if you love the Lord, every circumstance of your life sooner or later will work out for your good. Now, that's quite a promise. It's, it's the God-given assurance sooner or later will work out for your good. Now, to unfold that this morning, what I want to do is look at five keys to understanding this promise and learning this overarching, meaningful message, if you will, in the misfortunes of life. Now, he starts out, and the first point I see here is that this promise is certain. He says, and we know. Now, the context here of Romans chapter 8 is suffering. That's the, the context of the last part of this chapter. Uh, look back, if you will, just uh, to verse 17 of this chapter, Romans 8, 17. He says, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So it's acknowledging the idea that we suffer. Look at verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed um, in us. Down in verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and suffers. And I like verse 23. He says, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So we live in a suffering, groaning world. And I'm sure I don't have to convince anyone of that I hear this morning. We live in a suffering, groaning world and creation. Now, in the midst of the suffering and the groaning that's going on around us, and that's happening even in our own lives, there's two things that we commonly experience in life. And one of them I see in verse 25. Look at verse 25, the middle of the verse. Paul says this, we do not see. We don't see. I don't about know about you, but when you get in the midst of a trial sometime and a difficulty, you can't see the end of it many times in the perspective. And then in verse 26, he says, we do not know. We do not know. There's so much we don't see, and there's so much we don't know. When he says we don't know there in verse 26, he says we don't know how to pray. 
So there's so much in life for you and me in the trials of life that we don't see and that we don't know. Why do some people have cancer and struggle with that for, for many years, going through all kinds of brutal treatments and suffer so, and other people in that area go unscathed? Why do some couples have a child that dies and other couples have children that live on and outlive them in their lives? Why do 17 young people lose their lives down in Florida in a, a senseless shooting down there? I mean, on and on and on we could go. And I, I face this often in my own times of prayer, and I, you probably do too, thinking to myself, I don't see and I don't know. I don't understand this. When we gather together here uh, as a staff, every Thursday we gather as a staff and meet together and we pray for needs in our church. Every other Sunday, our elders meet, and uh, we have a, a long list of prayer needs in our church, and it's a long list. Imagine a church this size, and those are just the needs we know about. And I often find myself thinking, I can't see what God is doing in this. I don't know what God is doing. I can't see, and I don't know. That, that's the problem we have as fallen, finite creatures. A couple of weeks ago, Cheryl and I went and saw the movie Hostels. It's a Western. I love Westerns. It's kind of a grim Western. Um, I liked it. Cheryl didn't think it was that great till the end. Kind of had a happy ending. But it's set in uh, 1892 in New Mexico. And uh, the, the movie opens with this family, this woman, she's there. And um, these uh, Comanches come and they kill her husband and kill her three children. And she barely escapes, burn their house down. It's a, a tragic, you know, very brutal scene. And she stays there and then kind of goes to this other scene with this captain, this captain in the army, Captain Joe Blocker's taking this uh, dying Cheyenne Indian chief to Montana. And on their journey there, they run across this woman and she kind of joins their group. And uh, there, it's interesting, there's a lot of spiritual undertones in the movie. Uh, there's one beautiful scene, they're sitting around a campfire at night and there's this African-American soldier there and he's singing this old rendition of Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah. It's beautiful. But this woman is named Mrs. Rosalie Quaid, and at one point in the movie, this Captain Joe Blocker, I mean, the guy's been through all kinds of things in life, he's sitting out kneeling at the grave of one of his soldiers who's died on this journey. And he's got his Bible there, and she comes out, this woman who's had her family killed and all that comes out and sits there down to talk to him. And he asks her, he says, do you have faith? And she said, faith is the only thing that's gotten me through of all these things I've struggled with in my life. But then she says something in the movie that struck me. She says, we'll never get used to the Lord's rough ways. It's a powerful statement. We'll never get used to the Lord's rough ways. And I feel that oftentimes in my own life or as we look out in this world because we can't see what God is doing. We don't know what God is doing. But I love this. In the context of our not seeing and our not knowing, in verse 28, we come to something that we can know. Look at verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Now, he doesn't say that we feel like all things work together for good because often we don't feel that way. Often we feel the opposite. And he doesn't say we wish or hope that all things work together for good. It says here, we know that all things work together for good. Look, we can never unravel down here on this earth the mystery of suffering. We will never understand the Lord's rough ways. But thank God there is something uh, that you and I can know that's certain, that's sure, and that's positive. It's a certain promise to be claimed here. He says, we know. 
Now, the second thing about this promise is it's comprehensive. He says, we know that God causes all things. Now, it's important to notice here, he doesn't say God causes all things. God doesn't cause sin, and God doesn't cause every disaster. Now, God has to allow it to happen because he's sovereign. But God doesn't cause everything, and it doesn't say here that all things that happen to us are good things. Suffering in life is, is often brutal and shocking. Sin is evil and it's wicked. So it's not saying that God causes everything, and it's not saying that everything is good. What it is saying is that God causes all things to work together for good. And the biggest word in this verse is that little bitty word, all. If this verse said, God causes a lot of things to work together for good, we could probably say, well, okay, I can see that. Or God causes good things to work together for good. Or God causes the happy things to work together for good. Or even if it said God causes most things to work together for good. Our problem here is with the word all. And all means all. Nothing is excluded. There's no asterisk here by the word. Uh, there's no footnote that gives us more information below. There's no exceptions, no exemptions, no limitations, and no boundaries to this. So this includes personal mistakes, misunderstandings, trials, troubles, illnesses, disappointments, failures, adversity, sin, death, the dark things of life, the bright things of life, the happy things, the bitter things, bad financial reports, times of prosperity. God weaves every strand and every circumstance and every influence of life together to accomplish His purposes. Now, I thought about this this week, and if it didn't say God causes all things to work together, then it really wouldn't matter. If it just said God causes most things to work together, you're like, well, what are the things He's not causing to work together? If it doesn't say all, then it really doesn't matter. And God can even take the, the deepest, darkest failures and the sin of your life and my life and ultimately work it together in His plan for good. One of my favorite stories in that light is from the life of King David. I want to read you a quote by Warren Wiersbe. He says this well. I read this years ago, and this is deeply ministered to me for my own sins and failures in life. He says, what were David's two greatest sins? Most people would reply his adultery with Bathsheba and his taking a census of the people. Remember, you, uh, the kings weren't supposed to count their people and count their armies because when they did that, it meant they were putting confidence in that and not in the Lord. So David at one point took a census of the people. He says, as a result of his sin of numbering the people, David purchased property on Mount Moriah where he built an altar and worshiped the Lord. David married Bathsheba, and God gave them a son whom they named Solomon. Now we have Solomon building a temple on David's property on Mount Moriah. God took the consequences of David's two worst sins, a piece of property and a son, and built a temple. I mean, as a result of David's relationship with Bathsheba, he gets Solomon. As a result of his sin of numbering the people, he gets Mount Moriah. And then he says, this isn't an encouragement for us to sin. Now, don't take it that way this morning, right? Because David paid dearly for both of those transgressions. But it is an encouragement for us to go on serving God after we've repented and confessed our sins. Satan wants us to think that all is lost, but the God of all grace is still at work. 
So even when you sin and experience failure in your life, confess it to God, repent of that, and God can even work that for good in your life. So don't wallow in your mistakes and failures. Write Romans 8.28 over that page of your life and give your failures to God. By the way, think about what this tells us about the nature of God. That God is working together all things, all the time, for every one of His people. I mean, what does that tell us about what God's like, about the infinitude of God and the wisdom and the knowledge of God? I mean, we should bow before Him and fear Him and stand in awe of Him, a God who, who knows all things. Only a sovereign God could make this promise. To make this promise in Romans 8.28, you have to be all-knowing and you have to be all-powerful. It would be impossible for God to make the statement He makes here if He wasn't sovereign over everything. So God stands sovereign over all things. So this is an all-inclusive promise from an all-knowing, all-powerful God. All things work together for good. There's a, a man from church history. Some of you may have heard of him, Dr. Bernard Gilpin. He was actually born in 1517, the same year that uh, Martin Luther sparked uh, the Protestant Reformation. Um, he preached in uh, the, the British Isles. He was known back then as the Apostle to the North. But he was also known by everyone who knew him, all of his parishioners, as the Romans 828 man. Because anytime anything happened, he would say, all things work together for good. And there was a story one day, he was on, his tr- on some travels, and he broke his leg in an accident. And someone mockingly said to him, will your broken leg turn out for good? And he quickly responded, yes, the Bible says all things. And his broken leg, uh, as, as things turn out, delayed his trip to London where Bloody Mary had uh, determined to put him on trial and have him killed. By the time he was able to resume his journey, the news came that Bloody Mary had died and he was saved from almost certain death, went on to, to be a preacher for another 25 years. We ought to be Romans 8.28 people. Be great if people would say of us, that's a a Romans 8.28 man or a Romans 8.28 woman because we trust in this promise, this certain promise of God. And it's a comprehensive promise as well. But thirdly, it's continuous. And I see that here in the words work together. We know that God causes all things to work together. Now, that's a a word in the Greek. It's synergeo. We get our word synergy from that. It means things working together with one another. And it's in the present tense, which means that God is continuously working everything together. So in all of the mess and the pain and the misfortune and the loss and the failure of life, God is at work. God's plan is relentlessly unfolding, and it's not haphazard. Everything is in the hands of God. Now, there's a great deal of mystery to this for all of us. God's ways are higher than our ways. I I love Isaiah 55 and verse 9. It says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my thoughts, uh, uh, my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways are untraceable. In fact, if you turn a, a couple pages to the right in your Bible, to Romans 11, This is the end of the great doctrinal section of the book of Romans. And he ends it with this great doxology in verse 33. 
It says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgment and unfathomable His ways. He's saying here the ways of God are untraceable. And I think if we're wise, we will take Romans 11.33 and write that under Romans chapter 8. The ways of God are unsearchable. His judgments are unfathomable. This wise, all-knowing God whose ways are untraceable is continuously working together all the threads of life for our good. He's interlacing all the strands, if you will. And this means that the sovereign will of God is taking place in your life and in my life, including our troubles and our trials. Now think about this for a moment. If God wished for your life to be different, it would be different. I mean, God's in sovereign control. If God wanted it to be different, and if it would be better for it to be different, then God would have it be different. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, I mentioned him a few weeks ago. He visited here several times years ago. He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Pennsylvania, in, uh, in uh, Philadelphia. But uh, James Montgomery Boyce on Good Friday of, 2000, uh, of the year 2000 found out he had liver cancer. He died within just a few weeks. I mean, he knew it was very severe when they gave him the diagnosis. But uh, he said a lot of beautiful things. But here's something that Dr. Boyce said to his church, um, again, when he was able to be there not long before his death. Uh, think about it, these words in that context. Everything God does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. There's something going on in your life and you wanted to change it. If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It's part of God's plan for our lives. Dr. Handley Mole, he was a great preacher back in Great Britain. He died in 1920. One time there was a coal mine in Britain that caved in and several men were killed there. And some people ran to him and got him and brought him to the place where the families there were grieving the loss of these men in this mine. Now, would you like to have that task? Think what to say. Here's what he said to them, though. He said, it's very difficult for us to understand why God should let an awful disaster happen. But we know him and we trust him. And all will be right. I have at home an old bookmarker given to me by my mother. It's worked in silk, and when I examine the wrong side of it, I see nothing but a tangle of threads. It looks like a big mistake. One would think that someone had done it who did not know what she was doing. But when I turn it over and look at the right side, I see there beautifully embroidered the letters, God is love. We are looking at all of this today from the wrong side, from the underneath side. Someday we will see it from another standpoint, and we will understand those words were a great comfort to those people that day, and I pray they'll be a comfort to us as well. Sometimes it just looks like a tangled bunch of knots of thread when we look at this world from this side. But this passage tells us here this morning that all night, all day, right now, God is working together everything in your life and my life ultimately for our good. He's constantly, this, this work of God is constantly available. It covers every contingency that may develop in life. God works all things all the time. Robert Morgan says it like this, Romans 8.28 is the banner suspended over the life of every Christian. 
It's printed on our birth certificate when we're born, and it's inscribed on our tombstone when we die. So this promise of God, it's continuous. But it's also constructive. He says it's for our good. God works all things together for good. Now, this means God has a positive purpose in view. It's beneficial. Everything works for good. I was reading by a commentary by John Murray this week, a great Reformed theologian. He said this. This sentence really struck me. He says, No one detail works ultimately for the evil of the people of God. In the, in the end, only good will be their lot. That's powerful, isn't it? Not one detail works ultimately for evil for the people of God. Now, often we feel the opposite. We look at our life and we feel like everything's against us. In fact, uh, there's a great passage. I'd encourage you, if you're struggling right now in your life, go back and read the, the, the context of this. It's Genesis 42 and verse 36. Genesis chapter uh, 42 and verse 36. Remember, that's the story of Jacob, the patriarch. And um, remember his brother uh, Joseph is sold into slavery by the other brothers. And as far as Jacob knows, uh, Joseph has been dead for a long time. And remember his other sons now have had to go down to Egypt, and Simeon has been put in prison there. Now Joseph, they don't know who he is, he's there in Egypt, is demanding that Benjamin, the other younger son, be left there as well. And you've got old Jacob here, and he says in chapter 42 and verse 36, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. You would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now, if you haven't been there in life, you'll be there someday, where the place that you look at your life and you say, everything's against me. But what's powerful here is in the moment when Jacob says, everything's against me, everything's for him. He doesn't know Joseph's really alive, and he's the one who's in Egypt as the prime minister that God is going to use to save his family. Simeon will be released. Benjamin's going to be fine. God is taking care of everything. And the moment that he says, and he's overwhelmed by fear and anxiety, everything is against me. Actually, as it turns out, everything that seems to be against him was actually working uh, for his good. Now, when you get to Romans 8.28, though, and it says that all things work together for good, what does that mean? It means good as defined by God. And the good here is that Christ might be seen and glorified in our lives. That's the good. In fact, if you read down in verse 29, the next verse, it says, Whom he foreknow he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. God's ultimate good that he's working towards in your life and in my life is to make us more like Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate good that God has in mind. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, uh, he had his share of troubles. He said this once, Everything that happens to you is for your good. If the waves roll against you, it speeds your ship to the port. If lightning and thunder comes, it clears the atmosphere and promotes your soul's health. You gain by loss, you grow healthy in sickness, you live by dying, and you're made rich in losses. Could you ask for a better promise? It's better that all things should work for my good than all things should be as I wish to have them. All things might work for my pleasure and yet might all work to my ruin. If all things do not always please me, they always benefit me. This is the best promise of this life. And one thing I love here about Romans 8.28, it's not just a miscellaneous motto. Again, people just kind of take it out of its context and quote it. It's embedded here in the context of Romans. 
And if you go on and read verses 29 and 30, it shows us how all things work together for good. It's not just luck or fate. It's according to the divine decree and the divine purpose of God. Look at what he says in verse 29. He says that we're called according to God's purpose. Where you say, well, what is God's purpose? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, he glorified. So Romans 8.28 is an anchor for our souls that's held in place by the unbreakable chain of God's plan of salvation. God foreknew us in time and predestined us or in, in times past. In time, he called us. He justified us, and He will glorify us. Did you notice here the word glorified is in the past tense? Our glorification is a done deal. I like what J. Vernon McGee said years ago, too. He said, there's no seepage in God's program. This thing's airtight. If you're foreknown, you get predestined. If you're predestined, you get called. If God calls you, He justifies you. And if you're justified, you're glorified. There's no seepage in God's program. Someone says it like this, there's a chain of five golden links forged from eternity past in the blacksmith's shop of the sovereignty of the eternal God that anchors the promise of Romans 8.28. That's beautiful. The, the unbreakable chain forged in the fires of the sovereign decrees of God is what lies behind this promise that's given to us. And again, all the verbs here are past tense. It, it, it's something that's already done. So God is working all things for your good and for my good, according to his sovereign purpose here in his decree. These are great verses to learn and to memorize and to meditate on, and I hope you'll, you'll do that with Romans 8.28. Well, the, the fifth facet of this promise is it's conditional. This is a conditional promise. It's to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we get at this point to what I like to call the fine print. <laughs> as great as this promise is, this promise is not for every person. This is not a universal promise to be claimed by every person. You have to meet a requirement. There's a, a key contingency here. There's a, a boundary. There's a key condition that must be met. Now, I love the way this is stated in the Greek because in the Greek, in verse 28, you have all things work together for good, and it's bracketed on each side by a statement that limits its applicability. So let me read how, how this is really would be stated in Greek. It's a little bit more clumsy, but it's more accurate. And we know that to those who love God, all things work together for good to those being called according to His purpose. So you see you have in the middle, all things work together for good, but above it is to those who love God, and beneath it is to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, he says here, it's for those who love God, and that, again, that's in the present tense in the Greek. It means people that have a vital, ongoing love of God in their lives. It's an interesting way to describe a Christian. It's a person who loves God. And I think all of us know here, the Bible tells us the only reason we love God is because He loved us first. We love Him because He first loved us. And I think when it says that to those who love God, and then later it says those called according to His purpose, it's because of God's calling upon our life and His initiative 
in our lives in His grace. It's because of that that we love Him. So it's kind of giving the, the human side and the divine side. The human side is we love Him, but the divine side is all of this happens because of God's calling upon our lives. Our attitude toward God and loving Him is based on God's action and His gracious initiative toward us and calling us according to His purpose. Now, I'd ask you a question this morning. This is the most important question you'll ever be asked in your life. Has God's call reached you? Has that call of God reached you where you are in life? And have you responded to that call? Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You can think of it like this. God is calling you to call upon Him. That's the calling of God. God's calling in the life of a person is a calling for that person to call upon Him, to call upon God, to call upon the Lord to save them based upon the the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've never done so, why not respond to that call this morning? Why not call upon the Lord and be saved? You have your sins washed away. You'll be forgiven. God will give you the gift of eternal life. And you can write the banner of Romans 8.28 across your life. From this point forward, and in fact, even the things that have happened in your life in the past, God will be at work working all things together uh, for your good. Back in uh, 1890, Dr. John Broadus was in the pulpit of the Woodward Avenue Baptist Church in Detroit, and he preached on this passage, Romans 8.28. He was uh, the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, He had uh, just fewer than five years of life and ministry left. He was an older man at this time. But he he quoted this, this, or he stated this, and this is the conclusion, really, of his sermon on Romans 8.28. And I want to use this as our conclusion this morning. He said this, If you had your way, you would have no wants ungratified. Life would be all pleasure. No rude winds would blow. No chilling blasts would touch the cheek of those you love. But life is complex, and hard times come. Yet we know from Romans 8.28 that all things... The pleasant, the sad, the helpful, the severe are working together for the good to those who love God. We cannot fully understand now, but when we stand upon the heights of glory, we will look back with joy on the things we have suffered, for we shall know that even our severest trials were part of the all things which work together for eternal good. But that's the meaningful message, I think, ultimately, the the meaningful message in our misfortune. For those of us who love the Lord, every detail, every situation of our lives will sooner or later turn out for our good. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for loving us first and for calling us according to your purpose. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never responded to your gracious call, may they do so now. May they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, delivered, become part of the family of God, be justified, and be ultimately glorified by you. Father, I pray for myself that you'll make the promise of Romans 8.28 real in my life. And in the lives of all of us here this morning, you'll make it real to us, Father, and you'll make it accessible to us in our lives when we need it the most. 
Father, I pray this morning that through this promise, every one of us here will find hope and peace and comfort as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in His precious name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as uh, we're dismissed this morning with the Lord's blessing. And again, I pray that God will bring this passage home to us. You know, a lot of times when trials come in life, we, we quote this verses, verse to other people. And sometimes it's hard to grasp when you're in the midst of the trials. So I pray this morning that you may be in the midst of that now, and it may be a message you needed to hear. But if you're not in the midst of that, I pray that God can, can, can help it seep down into our lives so that when those times do come, we can grab a hold of it readily. And it'll be very real to us. Again, if you're visiting with us, thank you for being here with us this morning. We appreciate it very much. And if you go out these doors to your left, right around the corner, there's a welcome center. And there's some folks there that'd love to greet you and answer any questions you have about the church. Well, let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we are dismissed this morning with God's blessing upon us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments, unfathomable His ways. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Him be the glory forever and ever. All God's people said, amen.